0: Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any, cut it down, Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So I wanna talk a bit about the weather uh, recently and the fact that it seems like in recent weeks, first half of the week, we have sort of summer like weather and then also it gets to be like Arctic cold blizzardy for the rest of the week and, you know, that's part of it, the transition to spring. And we look forward to it just being spring. But of course, in early spring, uh, we, we, there is potential still for some dramatic weather. It's big, specifically, uh, tornadoes. And, uh, you know, tornadoes are unlike any other weather event. And first of all, they're incredibly intense. All right, Jeff, here's the first one here. I found this. I mean, here's, you know, the like tornado drove that a fork into it, you know, drives forks into trees. Uh, it's talking to somebody at St. John talking about after the Palm Sunday tornado, straw will be embedded in trees, and you want just how fast that wind is going. And uh, in fact, here's another one. Shows you how fast it was going, next one. Now, oh, back, can you get back? It was, can you go back, oh, maybe not. You you saw it though, right? That also was really fast, but it didn't break a record. (laughs) I put in your pause for laughter, because yeah. Anyway, oh, oh, one more. I heard about getting a song stuck in your head, but a song stuck in your telephone pole? Okay, all right, now this is interesting, too. All right, so it takes the roof off. You can see the windows, right? All right, advance it. Just hit the space bar. Oh, there it goes. One more space bar. There, so you can see furniture strewn about. But then, if you look right there, there's just a cake sitting under glass. So it's crazy, like... It's so intense, but it's also so quick that it that certain things get damaged, certain things don't. I mean, you probably know stories again from that Palm Sunday tornado where it just seems almost like there's. It's not only just messing with our stuff; it's messing with our heads. Why this? Why not that? This is uh, an interesting one in that um, this woman was trying to get into her house and uh, couldn't get her key into the door, and uh, the tornado came while she was still unlocking the door, so she just huddled in the door frame. If you could just, hopefully it'll just advance once, I don't know why it's going. All right, can you hit it? You can see sort of an outline of her body, so the, you can see that it just uh, whipped all this stuff at her, and then, you know, part of her house came down, but the door frame was one of the parts that just stayed in place, and so you wonder, oh had she gotten into the house, would she, would she have gone into a space that had collapsed and would she died? I mean, it was the hand of God and the fact that she couldn't unlock the door. Um, here, here's the next one. Now this does not look like there's all that much damage, but you know the rule in real estate, location, location, location. So advance, yeah, the house was picked up off the ground and laid in the street. Again, it's, I mean, so it almost seems like it was laid down in the street, uh, you know. And we want to try to figure out, like, how in the world, is it, we, you know? Again, did, did God make it so that woman couldn't open the door, so that she wouldn't go into the part of the house that collapsed, you know? And after this tornado ripped the house off from its foundations, did did God somehow catch it and, and place it down gently again? Um, the band Van Halen made this. Their record album uh, cover. If you advance more touch a couple years ago, and I think what they're trying to say is, all right, there's that house that got devastated. That one didn't. Was that because they had a picture of Jesus, or a statue of Jesus, uh, hands out in blessing? Um, you know, the house, the house seems intact. The other one's destroyed. Here's an, here's another. Uh, if you can go to the next one, uh, this is. There's a tornado, fire, and the people are going through the debris, and they find this little piece of paper, and it contains the poem that says, in storm-laden skies and sunshine and rain, God is always there. Was that a sign? You know, I mean, I don't doubt for a minute, of course, that God was there in the storm-laden skies, the wind and the rain. And I don't doubt for a minute that finding that poem in the midst of uh, that debris was a great source of comfort. But then what about the people who just searched through the debris in their yards and found only that debris? What if there was only the pain and struggle of having your home destroyed? You know, the question that gets thrust on Jesus in our passage is kind of Question that gets thrown at us when there's a massive earthquake or a tornado or a flood. You know, while the dead are still unaccounted for, you always see some news story asking the question, What is God telling us through this? What does this say about God? What can we read into this? And more often than not, there'll be some blowhard preacher around who's going to attribute it to, you know, no prayer in public schools or the gays or something, right? That's a sign of God's judgment. Because the other conclusion is, well, if it's not God's judgment, maybe it's a sign that God doesn't care. Maybe it's a sign that God doesn't exist. Uh, The staff reporter for the Los Angeles Times, he wrote a book called Losing My Religion, And it tells the story of his own faith and how he came to faith. And there was a time when he he, uh, prayed about his family's financial need and his pastor challenged him to be more specific about that need. So he said he prayed for $50,000. And a week later, he got a check for $5,000. And he thought, oh, well, God forgot a zero. And then a week later, he got another check, $45,000. And so he just, yeah, this sort of remarkable... Uh, experience, and then he got promoted to do uh, the religion stories for the Los Angeles Times. He thought, this is God's call on my life. I, here's how I can spread the gospel through the Los Angeles Times. But it just happened to be at the time where when the Catholic Church, the, the scandal was exposed about the, the abusive priests and the cover-up. And he did one story about an abusive priest after another. One story about a cover-up after another. Stories about churches that, when the cover-up was exposed, rallied behind these abusive priests, and it was all too much. And he lost his faith. He wrote an editorial about it and talking about how he lost his faith. And he's, in the book, he talks about a, a letter he received in response to that editorial. And it was a, his parents writing to say about, talk about how their child had been diagnosed with this genetic fatal disease. And they just could not wrap their head around how good people like themselves, how God could do something like that to them. And so they too decided there must not be a God because that was just too cruel. You know, and I would never want to downplay the tragedy, of losing a child, my, my heart goes out to those parents. I can't imagine. And I don't doubt that they were good people. But you want to say, had you been living under the assumption that there were parents who deserved to have that? Who deserved to have their child diagnosed with a fatal disease? Was that the kind of God they could believe in? The God who would punish bad parents by inflicting a disease on their kids? Now, frankly, I I do see the appeal of a God like that. Especially when my own life's doing pretty well. When my kids are healthy, when my marriage is strong, and my house has avoided tornadoes, and my country is not not under constant bombardment by Russians. I mean, it's sort of reassuring. Suggests that the creator of the universe has given me a thumbs up. God knows I'm not perfect, but I must be doing pretty good. But of course, when tragedy hits home, suddenly that God is revealed to be completely cruel or utterly cold. That God needs to die to not exist. You know, the good news. For those parents, is Jesus has no time for that God either. Those eighteen who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them—do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No. Give me a break. So now, if we don't have that God, if we don't have that, if we don't have a God who's just gonna... Punish bad people and give good things to good people, what sort of God are we left with? And I think what we're, I that sort of question is often considered in philosophical circles as, as about the problem of evil. The idea is this given the existence of evil, of, of, of tornadoes and genetic diseases, uh, you know, we could say God might be all loving but it must be that God's hands are tied and he can't keep the evil from happening. In other words, God must not be all-powerful. Or maybe God is all-powerful, but because there's all this evil, it must be that he doesn't care. God could do something about it, but God doesn't. You know, in my, in my last church, actually there were, there were some folks who had dealt with this question. Uh, you know, they published articles about it. I maybe even wrote a book. Um, And I I, I may have offended them in a sermon or two because I didn't cite their work on the topic. And I would be the first to admit that they are far more sophisticated thinkers than I am. But the reason I didn't cite their work on the problem of evil uh, in my defense is I have zero interest in that whole debate. I think it misses the point of the gospel. God's answer to the problem of evil is not a philosophical argument. God's answer to the problem of evil is a person. God does not give us an explanation to address tragedy. God gives us a body that addresses tragedy. God's own body. You know, I think lately I continue to find myself going back to those, that, those passages uh, describing Jesus on the night before he's arrested. I, mean, I don't know if there's a more tense, more heavy scene in all of, that's ever been written. The weight of that night. And, and when I read it again this week in Luke's gospel, there is this line, you know, so what's happened is they've celebrated the, the meal, Jesus asks them about the provisions that they have. And And then he says this, For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And here's the scripture. It says, And he was counted among the lawless. And indeed, what is written about me is being fulfilled, says Jesus. In other words, in order to address the problem of evil, Jesus says he must be identified as the problem. We must make him the problem. All the bad, all the tragedy, all the shame, all the heartbreak, all the anger at a God who who we conclude must either be unloving or limited in power or non-exist, that it all needs to be heaped on Jesus. He needs to carry it. He needs to die for it. And not in just some metaphorical way. As he hangs on the cross, condemned and naked and scorned, he needs to feel it. He needs to feel the weight of it. The agony of it. Enough so that he questions the existence or at least the presence of God. And that's what we get. Jesus, on the cross, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Those are his words. But they're not just his words. They're the words of parents receiving news about their child's diagnosis. They're, they're, they're the words of families searching through the rubble and, and uh destruction caused by tornadoes or caused by Russian missiles. Their cry is his cry. His cry is their cry. And this is how God addresses evil. In Jesus, in taking it all on himself, he hangs there alone, bearing the world's loneliness. He hangs there scorned, enduring the world's shame. He hangs and he suffers, carrying the world's pain, when when he dies, it dies with him. Our hope is not in a philosophical argument, a dissertation on the problem of evil. Our hope is in that body, that body of his, that body and that spirit operating within that body. Our hope is that that spirit can overcome everything that brought that body down. That's the hope of Easter. That's the hope of resurrection. Now, this is not to suggest that God is no longer operating in the world. That we should not look to see evidence of God's hand in life's joys and in life's tragedies. But it must always be interpreted, always be understood as pointing us to the cross. Pointing us in the the direction of God's answer in Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about Paul and his imprisonment for preaching this inclusive message uh, of the gospel. You know, imprisonment is society's way of, you know, casting judgment on you. there's often a good deal of shame involved in going to prison. But Paul does not interpret his own imprisonment that way. He connects it to the cross. He sees his imprisonment as as the means by which God is telling the story of the cross and of resurrection in his own life. He connects his suffering to Jesus' suffering. And so, because of that connection, he manages to find joy in the midst of his imprisonment. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Brene Brown. Uh, I recommend anything she writes Check out her videos on YouTube, they're all great. Anyway, she says this. She says, I thought faith would say, I'll take the pain and discomfort away. But what it ended up saying was, I'll sit with you in it. We cannot look at the pain and discomfort the struggle and tragedy in our lives or in the lives of others and think, ah, there, there, that's God's, that's how God feels about us. That's, about how, that's how God feels about the world. No, the cross. The cross, is about, it, it tells us how God feels about the world, that God so loves the world, so loves you. The cross, is God's embrace of us in our tragedy, in our messiness. It is God sitting with us in it. When we begin to sit with that, when the reality of that starts to settle in, we not only see the truth of the cross, we begin to experience the reality of resurrection. I'll sit with you in it becomes you will rise victorious with me through it over it that is god's answer name of the father the son the holy spirit amen